0: Listener, art thou advanced in years? Let thy gray hairs and pains and wrinkles admonish thee that thou art near to judgment. For what if death intervene? Yet after death all preparation is impossible. Just as death finds us, soul of judgment. In the place where the tree falleth, there it shall be. Ecclesiastes 11.3 Consider also that the number of your sins is in proportion to the number of your days. Long life will prove a dreadful curse to those who die in their sins. But if thou art in youth or in the vigor of manhood, remember that the life is of vapor, that most men do not live out half their days, and that of those who shall appear before the judgment seat. Comparatively few will have finished their course of three-score years and ten. Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, Ecclesiastes 12.1. Behold, the judge standeth before the door, James 5.9. Others have been suddenly taken away from your side. They also intended to make preparation hereafter. But while they were pleasing themselves with the prospect of many years and were saying, Soul, take thine ease. Thou hast much goods laid up for many years. God said, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Be therefore ready also for at such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh. Behold, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. And now perhaps thou art spared on account of the prayer of some kind intercessor for one year. This, for aught thou knowest, may be the last year. If so, it behooves you to make good use of your time and privileges. Let the idea of the judgment be ever before your mind. There you must appear. There you must stand and render up your account. There you must be filled with overwhelming shame and terror. There you must hear the awful final sentence, which will fix your doom irreversibly, unless by a speedy repentance and by faith in Jesus Christ you flee from the wrath to come. May God of His infinite mercy, God the truth which you have listened to, sink deeply into your mind. And by the light of His Holy Spirit, lead you to just views of your own condition and to a saving view of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Redeemer of lost sinners. Amen. The following sermon by Archibald Alexander. Professor in the Theological Seminary of Princeton, New Jersey, is taken from a book called Practical Sermons to be read in families and social meetings, and it is called Christ's Gracious Invitation. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. As a stream of living water to a traveler perishing with thirst, as a skillful physician to one sick with a dangerous disease, As a reprieve to a condemned criminal, such as a voice of mercy to the miserable, self-condemned sinner. Such in ten thousand instances have been these blessed words to heavy, laden, weary souls. These are words which can never lose their interest by age or repetition. As food is equally relished by the hungry appetite after having been eaten a thousand times as at first, so the precious promises of God bring the same refreshment to the soul, however often they may have been received by faith. The Christian does not desire novelties. All he wants is a heart to embrace and relish the same truth which has stood on the sacred page from the beginning. There is no penury in the divine word. All fullness and riches are included in this treasure if we are only in possession of the key of faith to unlock the ark in which it is contained. One great excellence of the sacred scriptures is that they never lose their power in sweetness. After the lapse of ages, God's promises to believers are as firm and consolatory as when first made. And In Christ's invitations to sinners are as full and as free to those who now hear the gospel as when first uttered. If Christ, while well upon earth, has spoken no more than these few words, they ought to be esteemed infinitely more precious than all the golden sayings of all the heathen sages. Let us then be truly thankful for such a gracious invitation, proceeding from the lips of Him who always spake as never a man spake, And let us lift up our hearts to the Father of life, to open our eyes and prepare our hearts to understand and appreciate the grace which is exhibited in these divine words of our Redeemer. But who are the persons here addressed by the Savior? What class of persons are designated by the laboring and heavy laden? As the gospel is directed to be preached to every creature, and as this call contains the essence of the gospel, there is no reason why we should not consider all who hear the invitation as included, especially as our Lord complains of the conduct of the most proud and unbelieving of His hearers, for refusing to come to Him. You will not come unto me that you may have light. All men are miserable. All men are by nature children of wrath. All men are laboring in the vain pursuit of earthly happiness. All therefore may consider themselves invited. None need feel themselves excluded from Christ's invitation. And the given this universal attitude to the call harmonizes with parallel passages of Scripture, especially with that remarkable invitation in Isaiah 55, 1-3. Ho, oh, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me. here and your soul shall live. And the gracious invitation of the Spirit in Revelation twenty-two seventeen 17 is equally free and universal. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is the thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. In the same extent ought to be given to Christ's public invitation to Jerusalem on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. In the last day, that great day of the Feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. John seven thirty seven. But while we think that this kind of invitation ought not to be restricted, we readily admit that it is more applicable to some of our race than others. The poor, the oppressed, the diseased, the persecuted, the halt, the blind, the friendless among men may have been more particularly in the eye of the blessed Redeemer. For it was given as one characteristic of his being the Messiah that was to come, that the blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Matthew eleven five. But there is another class to whom the Savior's address may be considered as still more appropriate. I mean, contented sinners laboring under a sense of guilt, and almost sinking under a burden too grievous to be born. Surely Christ, in respect of these, for He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, to seek and to say that which was lost, to heal those that are sick, namely, such as are sensible of their moral maladies. And even they who are groaning under the burden of a blind mind and a hard heart, and think that they have no conviction, even these who are so prone to exclude themselves are of the number invited. Yes, Christ speaks to you. He speaks to you more particularly than unto others. Do not, therefore, put away from you the gracious call as if it were intended only for others. Do not any longer ingenuously argue against your own souls. Do not by unbelief shut the door of mercy which the Redeemer has graciously opened. Neither should penitent believers who are burdened with a deep sense of their own defilements and continual imperfections be omitted when the several classes of heavy-laden sinners are designated. The great shepherd of the sheep has always especially regard to the tender and weak of his own flock. He carries the lambs in his bosom and gently leads those that are with the young. The kind condescension of the Son of God to the humble penitent is in many parts of Scripture set forth in remarkable words. He was described in prophecy as one who would comfort all that mourn. And who would give unto them who mourn in Zion, beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Thus saith the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. The bruised reed will he not break, nor quench the smoking flax. Let those in who are walking in darkness and troubled in mind. Let all those who are harassed and cast down with manifold temptations and sore inward conflicts which cause them to express their feelings and groanings which cannot be uttered in words attend to the gentle accents of mercy which proceed from the lips of Jesus. Unworthy and wretched as you feel yourself to be He passes you not by. He addresses you not in the language of reproach or condemnation but in that of a tender affection. Yes, He calls you also to come unto Him. Having considered the objects of the invitation, let us now contemplate the character of Him from whom it proceeds. Though we need to know more than the name of this divine person, yet even this is as ointment poured forth. His name is Emmanuel, God with us, said the angel to Joseph. Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. When our Lord put it to His disciples to say who He was, Peter, in the name of His brethren, answered, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And because he was born of a woman and made flesh, he often speaks of himself as the Son of Man. The prophet Isaiah, when he speaks of the child that should be born, and of the son that should be given, adds, And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, or rather the Father of Eternity, the Prince of Peace. And in the sublime vision which John had of the white horse, he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. His eyes were as a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. He is also styled King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And as his name indicates the dignity of his person, so they do the benign offices which he executes. He is a Redeemer, the Savior, The one mediator, the great high priest, the advocate, the great shepherd of the sheep, the judge of the quick and the dead. Immediately before he uttered the gracious invitation which we are considering, he had declared his divine knowledge and power. All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. None but he who was God with God in the beginning could utter such words without the highest blasphemy. But he who was in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And if our Redeemer was not omnipotent, his people could not trust in him. If he was not omniscient, it would be vain to call upon him. In Christ there is the most wonderful union of majesty and condescension, of heavenly glory and human sympathy and tenderness. While well, he claims to be God Overall, he is not ashamed to call us brethren. He took not on him the nature of angels, but the seed of Abraham. And the reason why we may come boldly to the throne of grace is because we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And the reason which he assigns here to induce us to come to him without hesitation is that he is meek and lowly in heart. How must we come? Not by a bodily approach, for this is impossible, where Christ now is, we cannot come. And a local approach, if it were practicable, would be useless. Many came to the Savior when he sojourned on earth, who never derived any benefit from him. His worst enemies and murderers came in contact with him when they seized, bound, buffeted, and scourged and crucified the Lord. And the traitor Judas lived in his family and traveled in his company for years and kissed him in Gethsemane. But this will only serve to render his doom the no more intolerable. It had been better for that man never to have seen Jesus, yea, never to have been born. Coming to Christ is undoubtedly an act of the rational soul irrespective of the body. It is a spiritual approach in which the Savior is apprehended by the enlightened mind in his true character. It is a full persuasion that he is indeed the Son of God and Savior of the law. It is the act of a convinced, distressed soul flying from the coming wrath to take shelter under the outstretched wings of his mercy. It is an exercise of humble confidence in the Redeemer of sinners that He will deliver it from all the evils which are felt or feared. There is nothing difficult in this act to the soul under the influence of the Holy Spirit, nor does it require a long time. It is executed as quick as thought. It is nothing else but the soul's cordial consent to receive Christ as the complete and only Savior, the weary and heavy-laden sinner, when almost overwhelmed with the burden of his guilt. Having sought relief from other quarters, at length hears the kind invitation of Jesus, Come unto me, and being enabled to give full credit to the truth and sincerity of the call, and to see the excellence and suitableness of Christ as a divine Savior, and being persuaded that every blessing needed to secure eternal salvation is treasured up in Him, receives Him as He is freely offered in the gospel, and willingly commits all its immortal interests into His hands and resolves to submit to Him and obey Him in all time to come. In all this the soul, though operated on by an almighty power, is conscious of no restraint unless it be the sweet constraint of the love of Christ. There is indeed an irresistible drawing towards Christ, but the more powerful it is, the more freely does the soul seem to act. Under the sweet influence of grace, the affections spontaneously go forth to Him, who now appears altogether lovely, And the weary soul experiences a sweet rest by casting all its burdens on the Lord. The principal act of faith is an act of trust. Blessed are all they that trust in Him. And having once this blessedness of confiding in Christ, we never think of seeking any other refuge. The believer is not only persuaded that He is the way, but the only way. On this account He is prized above all prized. To you who believe, He is precious. Well, may the name of Jesus sound sweet to the believer's ear, because there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. No wonder that He values above rubies or kingdoms that elect and precious cornerstone, though rejected by the proud and self-righteous, which God hath laid in Zion, because He is sure that it is a safe foundation on which to build for eternity, and because He is persuaded that other foundation can no man lay, to that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Coming to Christ is not an act to be performed only once, but it is to be continually repeated. Every day we need His aid, and every hour we should have recourse to Him by some confiding or grateful act. This access once obtained, the intercourse should be continually kept open. He allows His disciples the privilege of friends to come as often as they will, and He invites them to come with freedom and confidence to His throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So intimate and enduring is the intercourse between Christ and believers that there is a mutual indwelling. Christ is in them the hope of glory, and they in Christ as members of His body or as branches engrafted into Him the true vine. But perhaps the anxious inquirer still asks, How must I come? To which I answer, Come, poor and naked and helpless and unworthy, Come, renounce in all dependence on your own righteousness. If you attempt to come with a price in your hand, you will be rejected. Christ must be acknowledged and received as our only Savior. He will have nothing to do with those who place any confidence in their own works or in their religious privileges. He will not save you on account of your natural amiableness or on account of your moral honesty or diligent attention to external duties. You cannot, in these respects, go beyond the rich young ruler in the gospel. And yet he lacked one thing, and that was the main thing. In the punctualist observance of external duties and rites, you cannot exceed the scribes and Pharisees, and yet your righteousness must exceed there, or you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. You must come to Christ for wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. As long as sinners think that they are rich in increaseless goods and have need of nothing, they will not come to Christ. But when they are convinced that they are poor and wretched and blind and naked, they will be inclined to hear His counsel and come unto Him, to buy gold tried in the fire that they may be rich, eyes solved that they may see, and white raiment that they may be clothed, and that the shame of their nakedness appear not. In short delay not, that you may make yourselves better or prepare your hearts for the reception of Christ, but come at once, come as you are. If you are sick, apply to the physician. If you are defiled, come to the fountain open for sin and uncleanness. If you are burdened with guilt, come to a crucified Savior whose blood cleanses from all sin. If you are miserable, Christ promises you rest if you will come to Him. Are you kept back by a deep sense of unworthiness? This is the very reason why you should come. Christ came to save sinners. The deeper your guilt, the greater your need of just such a Savior. He saves none because their sins are small. He will reject none because their sins are great. He is as willing to receive the penitent who is the chief of sinners as the amiable youth whose life has been stained with no acts of gross transgression. Where sin has abounded, grace shall much more abound. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Of whom, says Paul, I am chief. Come then with confidence, trusting in that great assurance, him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. But as your case is urgent and dangerous, let me entreat you to come speedily. Ain't no delay. In such a case, delays are dangerous. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Enter while the door of mercy is open. Work out your salvation while it is day, before the night cometh when no work can be done. And the work which you are required to perform is to believe on Him whom God hath sent. You have no need to leave your seat to perform this act. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Help is near. The Deliverer is present. Application to Him is as easy now as it ever can be. Take words and return unto Him. Fall down before Him with confession and humble supplication. For he that calleth on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Venture on Him, for your are perishing where you are, and you will but perish if He should slay you. But if you are rejected and spurned from His feet, you will be the first that has thus perished. For God cannot lie, and He has promised to receive the soul that comes. What will be gained by coming to Christ? One thing only is promised. Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But in this one thing everything good is included. They only can be said to be at rest who are in a state of happiness, And true happiness can only be found in the favor and love of God. Can that man be said to be at rest whose sins are unpardoned, whose passions are unsubdued, and on whom the wrath of God abides? There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. The wicked are like the troubled sea which cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. Wicked men are like the evil spirit which went through the dry places, seeking rest and finding none. They are in constant pursuit of a phantom, which forever eludes their grasp. There is in this world no foundation of solid rest. To be preserved from perpetual agitation, our anchor must be cast within the veil. Noah's dove, which found no rest even for the sole of her foot, is an emblem of the restless condition of men. But the same dove, returning to the ark, is an emblem of the distressed soul flying to Christ from the deluge of deserved and coming wrath. And, oh, how kind is that hand which is stretched out of the ark to take in the fluttering, weary soul! Then, indeed, rest is enjoyed. I will give you rest, says the gracious Redeemer. And when He gives this precious blessing, it is found in experience to be a solid, undisturbed, sweet, and permanent rest. It is in no respect different from that peace which Christ so often and so emphatically promised. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. It is the declared will of the blessed Jesus that the joy of his people should be full. Therefore he says to his disciples, Your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Delightful indeed is that peace which Jesus not only speaks, but breathes into the soul, and sweet is that rest which the weary soul experiences when it takes refuge under the outstretched wings of His mercy from the gathering storms of wrath. In that auspicious moment, the troubled spirit not only finds rest from fear and remorse, but also from its own fruitless struggles of self-exertion and it rests from the unprofitable works of self-righteousness and finds complete repose in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. A believing view of the cross causes the heavy burden of guilt to fall off. And although the coming soul bows to the yoke of Christ and takes up his burden, yet love makes his yoke easy and his burden light. How sweet is the calm which the first lively exercise of faith in Christ produces! The cheerful light of day is not so pleasant to the eyes of one long immured in a dark dungeon as the light of his father's reconciled face to a prodigal just returned from his wanderings. It is indeed a marvelous light, which the gospel beams on the renewed soul. It is justly a day of feasting and rejoicing, when one that was lost is found, and when he that was dead is alive again." How affectionately and confidentially does the believing soul repose on the bosom of Jesus! And when his love is shed abroad in the heart, how intimate, how precious is the communion which it enjoys! Here truly it has found rest, but while in the body these bright views and pleasing prospects are often obscured. While the bridegroom is present, the bride rejoices, but when he is absent she mourns and often inquires, Saw ye him whom my soul loveth? If we lose sight of the objects of faith, and especially if sin be indulged, and the spirit grieved, darkness and sorrow will again visit the soul, and rest can only be found by coming again to Jesus, from whom it was first received, and as often as we come to Him, we find His promise verified, rest is obtained. But whatever is experienced here, whatever seasons of calm repose may be enjoyed... Whatever moments of ecstatic joy, yea unspeakable and full of glory, may transport us, these are but drops from the fountain above, a mere foretaste of the river of pleasure which flows from the throne of God. Here our pilgrimage is through a wilderness, but soon all our sorrow shall cease, and we shall enter into that rest which remains for the people of God. The last conflict of the believing soul is in death, for this is the last enemy. The last darkness which will ever be experienced is that of the valley of the shadow of death. The last last bitterness which shall ever be tasted is the bitterness of death. The last waves of sorrow which shall ever roll over such a soul are the swellings of Jordan. The last fiery dart which the enemy shall ever be permitted to aim at the friend of Christ will here be cast. Yea, better than all the last consciousness of indwelling sin is experienced in this hour. Pain Pain will no more be known, but in the joyful consciousness it is gone forever. Admitting then that this is a dark passage, an appalling scene, an unnatural separation, a painful agony, a direful conflict, yet even here the shepherd of Israel can give us rest. Even here the captain of salvation can make us conquerors, and more than conquerors. In the midst of the darkness of death, a celestial beam often shines to guide and cheer the heavy-laden traveler. Even the sting of death may be absent, and all fear and all doubt removed. Rest may be, has been, enjoyed on a dying bed. The pious dead sweetly rest in the bosom of Jesus. How calm, how serene, how confident, how extracted from earth, how heavenly they sometimes appear before they forsake their clay tabernacle, knowing that they have a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Jesus can make a dying bed feel soft as downy pillows are, while on his breast I lean my head and breathe my life out sweetly there. But we should not make too much of the comforts of a dying hour. Some of God's dear children pass through this gloomy way with scarce a twinkling ray to animate or guide them. Yea, some who in life enjoyed pleasing prospects of future bliss have had their day turned in the night, and the death thing to them has indeed been a tremendous conflict. The powers of darkness have been let loose to assault them. The sweet light of divine favor has been withdrawn, and added to this a confusion of physical derangement has contributed to spread over the pious mind a dense cloud even in the departing hour. But still Christ is in the cloud. Christ has not forgotten His promise. I will never leave thee, never, never, never forsake thee. He will shield His own from real evil. He will speedily grant a rich recompense for every pang. He especially knows how to sympathize with those dying in agony and under darkness. It was his own sore experience. Oh, how bitter was that cry above all others. My God! My God! Why hast thou forsaken me? And in proportion as the agony is severe will be his promptitude to grant deliverance. It may be that desertion at such a time is permitted that the soul may know something of the intensity of the suffering of the dear Redeemer at that moment. But it is soon over. The passage, though dark is short, and the transition is glorious, the sweetness of the promised rest, when first enjoyed, will bear some proportion to the bitterness of the death just escaped. At any rate, heaven will be as truly a rest to such as die under a cloud as those who experienced an anticipation of heaven on their deathbed. We need make no distinction. Rest is promised to all, and the joy of all shall be full. If some experience a delight superior to that of other believers, it will be because they are capable of taking in more of the bliss and glory of that boundless ocean in which all swim. There indeed is rest rest from labor, rest from trouble, rest from persecution, rest from sickness, rest from conflict and temptation, rest from doubt and fear, rest from sin. In short, rest from every evil and the enjoyment of every good, of which a purified, glorified, immortal soul is capable. This, then, is a motive to induce you to come to Christ, for all this and much more is included, when when he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Wales of Salvation by Archibald Alexander With joy, says Isaiah, Shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation? Pure water is often employed by the sacred writers as the emblem of grace. The figure is used in several different senses. Water represents purity, and the washing with water the purification of the soul. In that day, says Zechariah, shall be a fountain opened for sin and uncleanness. Wash, make you clean, says Isaiah. And in the New Testament we read of the washing of regeneration, of being born of water, and of having our bodies washed with pure water. The ordinance of baptism evidently implies, among other things, this, as was said by Ananias to Paul, Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins. But as water is necessary to comfort of life, yea, to its very existence, we find it often used as an emblem of life and refreshment. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, Come ye to the waters. On that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, If any man thirst, Let him come unto me and drink. And Christ said to the Samaritan woman whom he met at Jacob's well, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. And again, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And in the book of Revelation, we have one of the sweetest, richest texts on this subject. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that hear us say, Come, and let him that is athirst thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Another use of certain waters among men is for healing diseases. Medicinal springs are sought after and resorted to all over the world, but I do not find that except in case of miraculous healing any mention is made of water as medicinal in the Bible. The pool of Bethesda was famous in the time of our Savior for the healing virtue of its waters, but this, we are told, was owing to a miraculous cause. An angel descended into the pool at certain seasons and troubled the water. And whosoever first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. So also we read in the Old Testament that Naaman the Syrian, by the direction of Elisha, was healed by an inveterate leprosy by dipping himself seven times in the river Jordan. And the blind man, whom our Savior healed by placing clay on his eyes, was directed to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And he went and washed and came seeing. If there should be a miraculous fountain open in some part of the world, which had the virtue of curing all sorts of bodily diseases, what an amazing rush would there be to reach it by the rich and the poor! The ways leading to it would be constantly crowded with pilgrims seeking a cure of their various diseases. The sick and decrepit, as when our Lord was on earth, would be borne by their friends and bathed in the fountain of life. The superstitious heathen, Travel hundreds and thousands of miles to visit some fountain supposed to possess a healing virtue. And in some popish countries sacred wells are visited at certain seasons by poor deluded people who expect healing from waters which possess no healing quality but what imagination gives them. But when it is announced that a well of salvation is open for the healing of the maladies of the soul, very little interest is felt by most in the tidings. Men are not sensible of their spiritual diseases, therefore do not seek a cure. Yea, they are under such a direful delusion that they are unwilling to be healed. They fondly cherish their mortal maladies and are often offended when urged to come to the wells of salvation to be healed. A few, however, are thirsting for salvation, and they rejoice to hear that a fountain is actually springing up in this wilderness to which they are freely invited. Such come with joy to the wells of salvation, And oh, how sweet are the repeated droughts of the water of life which they drink in. Others are deeply affected with a conviction of their moral defilement. They ardently desire cleansing. To all such we bring glad tidings when we announce that there is a fountain open for sin and uncleanness. Do you ask where? In the gospel, in Christ, who is a sinner in substance of the gospel. The following narrative by Archibald Alexander is about George Inglis, who was saved while blind by hearing the word narrated by somebody else. Reverend and dear sir, I will now endeavor to fulfill the promise made to you some time ago by giving such information as is within my recollection respecting the case of George Inglis, that gentleman... A native of Philadelphia had received a classical education, and with it every indulgence which a father's partiality could bestow. Brought up in the gay world, it is to be feared there was but little attention paid to his immortal interests. After spending the time necessary to acquire the knowledge of mercantile affairs, he left the city for the West Indies, where he was for a while, successful in business, and found himself in circumstances to visit England, and while in London, throwing aside every restraint, he indulged himself in all the amusements and levities of that gay metropolis. Returning to America, he engaged in business in the state of Virginia. After residing some time there, it pleased the Lord to deprive him of his sight, and affliction at that time looked upon him as insupportable. For he saw not the hand from whence it came, but after he was made sensible that he was a brand snatched from the burning, Often I have heard him bless the chastisement of that of a tender father. Inglis had weak eyes from an early age, but his blindness came on suddenly. Finding no relief from the physicians where he resided, he left Virginia for Philadelphia, and upon the application of his friends was received with a servant into my house as a boarder. I found him a man of strong passions, impatient under sufferings, and not willing to submit to restraints of any kind. When the physicians of the city were consulted, they gave his friends no hope of the recovery of his eyesight. Him they soothed with the promise of a further consideration of his case. A few weeks after he came to my house, a gentleman very celebrated as an oculist came to that city. Inglis applied to him for advice. He did not tell him that his was an incurable case, but said that he would see him again. He bore this very impatiently, observing to me that life was now becoming an intolerable burden, but that he had this consolation that he had it in his power at any time to lay it down. It was but to increase the quantity of opium, he was in the habit of taking opium, and all his sufferings would be at an end, and that, after another visit from the doctor, if he found there was no hope of his recovering his sight, he would certainly take that method of putting an end to his existence." I remonstrated with him on the impropriety of his behavior, alleging that he had no more right to take away his own life than he had to take away the life of his neighbor, asking him if he had considered the consequences of rushing uncalled into the presence of his Maker. His answer was that he had considered it well, and he advocated his opinion on this principle, that he was by a merciful Creator, placed on this earth to enjoy the good things of this life, as far as it was in his power honestly to obtain them, that the duties required of him were to be as useful to his friends in particular and society at large as his circumstances would admit of, that having lost his sight, he should no longer enjoy any happiness here, would become a burden to his friends, and could be of no use in the world. He alleged that the purposes for which life was given to him were now defeated. Of course, there would be no impropriety in laying it down. I made some remarks on what he had advanced as his sentiments, and to strengthen what I said, quoted some passages of Scripture. These he treated in a very light manner, spoke of the Bible as the work of men, contrived to keep the vulgar in awe, with many other observations too common with men of deistical principles. I then inquired if he had ever read the Bible. He frankly acknowledged that he had not since he left school. Upon asking him if he had not read the works of those that were opposed to the Scriptures, he admitted that he did if so i observed he must have formed his opinions from the avowed enemies of that sacred book was this a fair method of proceeding i said that i thought he would not act thus on any other occasion this book you acknowledge you have not read since you were a boy all that you know about it you have from the enemies of the christian religion Taking these things into consideration, I hope you will no more speak against the Bible, as it is a book that you have never read since you were capable of forming a judgment of its contents. He apologized in a handsome manner for what he had said, acknowledged that he was wrong in speaking as he had done, and expressed a wish to have it read to him. This I declined and gave my reasons for so doing, which were that a man so prejudiced as he appeared to be was not likely to profit by the reading of the Bible, that he would most probably cavil at, and perhaps ridicule it. In so doing he would wound my feelings without benefiting himself, for I considered it as the word of God, and my hopes of eternal salvation rested on the truth contained in it.